If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I am Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Alexandra Levitt. She is a futurist, a partner at People Results, and the author of the new book, Humanity Works. She holds a degree in psychology and communications from Northwestern University. Welcome to the show, Alexandra. Thanks for having me, Byron. It's great to be here. So I always like to start with the same question. What, what exactly is intelligence? And so by extension, what is artificial intelligence? Well, I believe, I don't have the scientific definition on hand, but I believe intelligence is understanding how to solve problems. It is uh, possessing a degree of knowledge in an area so we can have what we consider to be traditional intelligence, which more is uh, in the realm of knowing facts and knowing a particular area of expertise. And we can also have emotional intelligence, which reflects your ability to understand people's motivations, their emotions, and to interact with them in a way that's, that's going to form productive relationships. So there are different kinds of human intelligence, but at the end of the day, I think it's, it's really about having the ability to, to figure things out, to respond accordingly, and to, uh, to get a hold of, of a body of knowledge or uh, sensations or feelings and, and use them um, to your advantage. Now, when we look at artificial intelligence, we are referring to not the human ability to do this, but a machine's ability to do this. And the reason it's called artificial is because it's not human. It's something that we've built. It's something that we've created. And the machine then has the ability to at least somewhat act autonomously, meaning that we might program it initially, but then it can make decisions. It can complete tasks based on what we have given as general guidelines or parameters. So I, I hope one of the reasons that this discussion is interesting to, to your listeners or readers is that I, I think probably everyone who is listening or reading has their own opinion about what artificial intelligence is. And in fact, we could probably spend the whole hour talking about that because well, there obviously are, are different books, and, but that, that's my take on it. Absolutely. And, and to be clear, there's no consensus definition of what intelligence is to begin with, like even before right. all this came right. along. So uh, I wholeheartedly agree. The, where, where I'm trying, and I don't think of the question so much as a angels dancing on the head of a pen type thing, because mm -hmm. in the end, kind of, as we get closer to talking about your book, I think we're really interested in how humans and machines are different. So when you mm -hmm. said, uh, when you were talking about human intelligence, you used words like understand. Can a computer ever understand anything? I, I think so. I, you look at uh, some of the early experiments that were done around chess with IBM um, programming Watson to do, um, to do chess games. And you see that the, the algorithm was, was able to understand the game of chess and was able to determine what moves to make in what sequence. And so that it required a, a possession of, of, the, of the game and being able to really manipulate the rules. So it wasn't just that the machine was completing a set 
task or a set series of tasks, in fact. And uh, that, I think, is what makes artificial intelligence different than just we're going to program a machine to do X, Y, and Z. Artificial intelligence requires a, a degree of autonomy. And that's something that, that we're seeing today when we program algorithms that we have not seen in the past. I mean, we've obviously been working, and Byron, of course, your audience knows, has been working with computers for a really long time, and they've been helping us out with things for a really long time. But it has required direct human intermediation at every single stage. If a machine is going to do one thing, you got to tell it what to do. And that's where the whole field of programming rose. It was just like, okay, we're going to write this code, and the machine is going to do exactly that. And artificial intelligence is different because then, then they start to almost think for themselves and build upon their knowledge. And my, my favorite example of this lately, and I love to use this example because I think most people know it, and that's Gmail. Most people have Gmail, and most people have noticed in the last couple of months that the artificial intelligence behind Gmail is really learning from your experiences writing emails and and uh, archiving things and uh, adding attachments and putting things in your calendar, it starts to anticipate what you're going to do based on what you've done in the past. And so I've got my Gmail finishing sentences for me in email in the correct way. I've got it asking me where I want to put something in what folder and it's correct. I've got it saying, you know, you mentioned the word attachment, but there isn't one, you know, do you want me to attach something? And it's not even just attach anything. It's that they, they've guessed, it, the algorithm, has guessed the correct attachment. And every time I use it, as it goes on, it gets smarter. And to me, that's, it's one of the best, most salient examples of artificial intelligence. It's learning from its experience working with me. It's not just doing exactly what I told Gmail to do. And I find it fascinating, and I love sharing it because I feel like virtually everyone has Gmail now and has experienced this over the last couple of months and been like, wow, I mean, geez, how did it know that? And this is AI. But still, the computer is just a giant clockwork. I mean, you just wind it up and it just, and the AI just does its thing. If email copy contains equals attachment, then suggest perhaps attachment scan for text for file type. If file type doc is in, I mean, there's nothing particularly I mean, the computer doesn't know anything any more than the compass knows which way is north. I mean, I guess if you think the compass knows how to find north, then maybe the computer knows something. But, I mean, it's as, it's as dead and lifeless as, as a, as a wind-up clock, isn't it? Well, I, I think you bring up a really good point in it being dead and lifeless. I think that's a different thing than it knowing. I, I think... It can know things just based on other things that have happened. So this is what I call, and again, this is not official, but I call it the assimilation of information. So it has the ability to determine what's happened in the past and know what might happen in the future given, given that. And so that is a form of knowing, and it is a form of being able to do something differently than what you've been specifically programmed to do. I think specificity is a really important part of this. And the other thing that, that I would piggyback on, and you know I was going there, is, is the dead and lifeless. I, I think where I talk about the difference between humans and machines in my book has a lot to do with the human traits 
that machines as of now and probably as of a, a great deal in the future do not have. I mean, these are things like empathy and judgment and creativity, interpersonal sensitivity. These are the things that make us different. And it's because until machines develop consciousness, um, they're not going to have anything like a moral compass or ethics or really even the ability to determine if something subjective is appropriate or any good. They're really going to be focused, even if they're intelligent, they're going to be focused on things like the bottom line. I've been using the example a ton lately because, again, it's one of those that everybody's familiar with. When United Airlines pulled um, that guy off the plane at O'Hare because the algorithm that was governing the flight attendant's schedule told the staff that these flight attendants, on no uncertain terms, had to get to their destination or else it was going to cost United a lot of money. And so what we saw happen is that the United staff just sat passively by and said, well, the, the computer tells us we got to move these people. And nobody stopped to pay attention to the nuances of how is it going to feel to that passenger if we pull him off this plane against his will? What might happen from a reputational standpoint if it gets caught on YouTube that we forcefully removed someone from a plane and the people have sort of a repugnancy toward this type of behavior. And this is, I think, really where it's important that we keep in mind the difference. I, I refer to this and I didn't make up this term, but it's human in the loop. Wherever there is a machine that is inserted into a process there has to be human there at every step of the way checking the process, just like the government. Maybe it's not the best example these days, but our constitution is supposed to be written. So the different branches of government check each other. And that's where I think we need humans to build a machine, to not only just program it, but figure out how it's going to be deployed, to oversee and manage it, to make sure it's serving its intended function, to fix it when it's broken, and then figure out what it's going to do next. Even the most simple applications of automation, you still need that human in the loop to be overseeing things. And because humans, it's because humans have that moral compass, that judgment that you don't see machines have that because they're programmed to focus on the bottom line. And even if they're smart, that's what they're going to do. They're not going to be standing back and well, you know, what's going to happen? Well, how are people going to react? Is this going to motivate people? They don't know the answers to that. And, and that's, I think, really important. We have to be careful not to automate large swaths of our employee population because without the humans in the loop, bad things are going to happen. And we're going to see a lot more happening that's like that United Airlines example. For people who aren't sure how that ended up, it ended up very badly. United Airlines took a huge hit to its reputation and ended up having to pay that dude a lot more money than they would have paid if those flight attendants had just had to take another flight. So lesson learned, I hope other companies don't go through the same thing, but I suspect it's going to be a painful learning process for companies realizing, you know, machines aren't perfect and they're never going to fully replace human beings. You've got to have your humans checking the power of those machines. But what you just said was, in the end, it cost United a lot of money, right? Yep. And so they they shouldn't have done it. For that reason, correct? Well, I mean, it depends on figure out too. So you're just saying you're better at figuring out the bottom line than the computer, because you say in the end it comes down to the bottom line. They should have done it because they had to pay a lot of money out otherwise. So you, well, I like to use, yes and no. I like to use that example because I feel I talk to leaders 
and I talk to companies and I feel like that's something that speaks to them. They, they want to know, all right, why or why, why shouldn't I do something based on how much money it's going to cost? Now, an individual, and in fact, myself and probably you, Byron, have a different point of view on that. Like, you shouldn't do it because it's morally wrong. And it doesn't matter about the bottom line. And also, from a reputational standpoint, it's going to be hugely damaging, which, you know, that does have dollar amounts associated with it. But mostly, it's like you want to look like you're a good company that does right by its customers. So there's a variety of reasons they shouldn't have done it. Uh, but which one you value kind of depends on your position. <laughs> Man, but if, if you were that flight attendant that got that seat, United had like the best customer service in the world. Um, let me ask you this. I want to go back to this knowing thing because it, it, I think it really matters. Because if a computer can know something, then it implies there is a knower. There's something that knows. And I think back to Weizenbaum. To, um, do you know that whole story about Eliza back in the 60s? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, for the, for, the, for the listener, there was this guy named Weizenbaum in the 60s. He made a, a chatbot, really, in the, called Eliza. And, that it, and, and you could tell it your problems. And in a really rudimentary way, it would, it would kind of draw you out. Why do you feel bad? What did your mother do to make you, you know, it, it's very simple. But Weizenbaum saw people pouring their hearts out to it. And this really bothered him. And he ended up like unplugging Eliza. Now, understand those people knew it was a program, and yet they had this kind of emotional attached to it, attachment to it. And Weizenbaum mm-hmm. said, when the computer says, I understand, it's just a lie. It's, there's nothing, there's no I there, and there's nothing that understands anything. And I guess that's what I'm trying to get back to because I think only people can understand things. And and, and I'm kind of curious how, without just playing semantic gymnastics, how you can say a computer can understand something. Well, I, I mean, personally, I mean, I, this is a fantastic discussion. I'm enjoying it a great deal, actually. Um, I, I think it depends on what you mean, what type of knowledge you say it's going to understand. The example that you used has to do with complex human emotions. So... The fact is, yes, the way that we have programmed machines today, the abilities that they have, they're not going to understand an emotional state that's that specific. Actually, I mean, I, I might go back on that and say that we have seen lately the rise of what's known as effective computing, where machines can, in fact, recognize and manipulate uh, human emotions that they might hear and be able to, to pinpoint where that where, where that person is coming from, what they might do next. So this is in its very, um, very infant state. I wouldn't say this is being used in a, in a great, um, great number of companies, but, but it is starting to happen. But overall, I would agree with you, Byron. I, I would agree that if someone is pouring their heart out like you were a therapist, if you're like the machine was a therapist, the machine's not going to be able to, to really comprehend anything like that. I, I think we're just, well, again, it goes back to the issue of consciousness. I, uh-huh. How would they be able to be autonomous enough and have enough experience with the human condition and how, the, how emotions work to be able to effectively engage in that? And I think it's the same as it was with Eliza today. I, I don't think we've made enough strides here where that would even be ethical. And one thing I am hearing about, though, it's kind of similar. I don't think it's quite as, I don't know. I, I hate the idea of a machine 
serving as a, a therapist or a confidant because I, I actually think that's, again, I have like my sort of unique moral problem with that being a human. But I am hearing about things like salary robots where if you want to raise at a company, instead of going and talking to your boss, you might, for example, go in and tell a machine or an algorithm, present your business case, talk into a microphone or even face a, a robot and discuss why you think you should get that money. And not only will the robot examine the business case, but it will also pay attention to your tone of voice. How confident do you sound? How frustrated do you sound? How likely are you to walk if you don't get that, if you don't get that money? And so you can think about all sorts of interesting business applications for this kind of thing. Uh, productivity wearables is another thing where you're, you've got a device that pays attention to how much you're talking with other people, how much you're smiling. How much you know you're not working at your computer? Like, are you, are you disengaged? When you're disengaged, what what are you doing? And so we're starting to see a machine, a smart machine, make recommendations for behavior based on what they're observing. But still, I think what you're talking about is a very complex series of of human traits that that are needed to really effectively manage that situation. And I've got another example of what you're talking about is what Japan tried to do with their nursing shortage. And what was happening here was that Japan realized, oh God, you know, we're training nurses, but we don't have enough to meet the demand of our aging population, which is, by the way, a problem that most developed countries are having now. And so their answer to this was not to train more human nurses, but to build an, a robot nurse. And they called it um, Robear. It was a six-foot-tall white bear and the idea behind Robear is that it would replace human nurses. Well, they realized the hard way that that isn't as easy as they thought because human nursing is, is one of those professions that requires a lot of complex emotional engagement. So as an example, nurses might have to walk into a crisis scenario and immediately be able to determine what specialists they need to bring in based on who they've worked with in the past and what they've seen in the past to solve a, a difficult medical emergency. They have to be able to sit down with a patient's relative who just received a difficult diagnosis and talk them through it and, and have some empathy and make them feel better. They have to be able to look into a patient's eyes and ascertain the level of pain that person is in and, and what degree do we, do we need to raise their medication. I mean, these are really complicated human tasks. And so unfortunately for Japan and the hospital there, they realized, oh, all Robear can really do is move people in and out of bed and serve them meals. We need people to do all this other stuff. And I think there's a lot of jobs like that where, oh, we, we didn't really realize that, you know, you can't just have a, have a machine therapist. By the way, you really need someone who's going to understand and empathize for real. And it's true what you said, that people do develop emotional attachments to machines. It happens all the time. But I think there's inevitably some sort of feeling of letdown or disappointment when you really think about it and you're like, yeah, that's not going to really fly. And there have been some interesting movies in the last couple of years that are, um, and Her is one of them, um, where, you know, people will fall in love with a machine and even in those cases where it's science fiction and, and the machine does have quite a lot of advanced emotional capabilities, at the end of the day, you realize it's a machine. And I, I think most people are not going to get the type of deep relationship that they, they want, at least not 
in the near future. Again, all bets are off once we have the technological singularity where we have no idea machines will reach a, a certain level of intelligence. We can't imagine what our society will be like at that point. And so all bets are off when that happens. <laughs> but I think uh, in the near future, I, I just don't see, I, I think, right, I just don't see it happening where machines can really know anything about human emotion. Besides what so, I already said, like the basic identification and application of those emotions, which is effective computing. So you, you said at the beginning that artificial intelligence is artificial because we built it, not, and, and the other school of thought would be, it's artificial because it's fake. You know, it's like artificial turf isn't really grass. It's, it's something that just looks like it. You know, artificial sweetener isn't sugar. It's just something that happens to taste like it. Um, uh-huh. If a computer, let's say we, let's say we, you know, didn't achieve consciousness. We just really got good at computers reading every muscle, every twitch, reading all your body language learning from that and and a computer could emulate empathy like perfectly but we kind of all know it's just like i said earlier a giant clockwork is it doesn't really care about you um right and that's artificial empathy and all of a sudden now it's artificial and the term that is not real it's not real so would you share would that, would that be okay to you if we made machines that could, you know, the example is always elder care, like they could listen to somebody's stories and chuckle and laugh and say that was a good one and, and say they love them and all of the rest. Is that okay? I, I think it's okay because I think that in many cases it will achieve the purpose, which is using the example of elder care, people are lonely. So it's going to be better to have that machine or that robot than nothing. Um, and we are going to have an elder care shortage of human workers throughout the developed world. It's just going to happen because the boomers are just a huge generation. I think what we're really seeing the application of what you're talking about will be when the, as the millennials age. They're an enormous generation. The generation just underneath them, Gen Z, is much smaller. So we're going to need those those robots to to take on some of, of those tasks. Now, whether it means that you don't have to have anything else, like you don't need to have family or you don't need, need to have social support, I think what's important to me in this distinction is the... I think that there's just some unexpected things that happen with human interactions. I mean, we always talk about humans being kind of unpredictable. Like you just never really know how someone's going to react in a situation. And there's some novelty in that, but I think even as we get frustrated by our loved ones, our friends and family, sometimes we, we still, we are used to that. We've been programmed to deal with that over you know, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. And I think that's where we're going to see machines not being as good with the spontaneous side of stuff. You'll be able to completely predict how they're going to react and what they're going to do. And I can see that getting stale, to be honest with you. And also, though, there will probably be no conflict in those type of situations, because why would there be? That machine is going to be able to pretty much accurately assess what you're going to do and what you need in most situations, and will be programmed to to be uh, responsive to that. I think we're, there's a great example of this. I know you're probably familiar with the show Black Mirror, but the first season, I think it was the first season, either the first or the second, I believe it was the first, there was a machine that was developed where if, if your loved one died, 
you could have them regenerated in a robot. And that robot knew everything that you'd ever posted online and had formulated and then really pinpointed that personality based on what they, what they could find out. But it, it follows the experience of one woman who lost the love of her life and tried to bring him back in this robot form. And the robot looked exactly like him, talked exactly like him, and had most stuff down, just like you're talking about. So 90% of the stuff was exactly what this dude would have said if he was alive, but there was something, something missing. And some of that was intangible and some of it was tangible in the sense that, you know, he'd have like kind of a quirky sense of humor where he'd say something and it would be unexpected. And the robot didn't quite have that down. And at the end, she just got frustrated because this guy was so perfect. The robot was so perfect. Like he behaved perfectly. He didn't engage in things that were irrational. And that's just innately not the way relationships are. So um, I, I think that there will be a lot that can be served by these, these robots. But again, until, until they become exactly like humans, I, I think that there's going to be something missing and most people will recognize that. You know, you could be right. I, I have kind of two problems with it though. Um, the one is when you use them for interaction, like, you know, from an elder care robot, you can just as easily get a kindergarten teacher robot. Then. And I worry about the corrosive effect of raising people, children even, on artificial fake emotions. Like, there's nothing true about any of that. It's all just a big lie. And I worry about that. And I worry, secondly, that, you know, when that robot breaks, you just throw it away. And we have kind of clawed our way to something called human rights. And we say, there are certain things you don't do to a human. And, and if you start making things that sure seem human and sure look human and sure act human, but you just throw them away, you know, you, then you push them in front of the car or, you know, whatever you have to do, they don't have any moral value. Then I wonder if that yeah. has a corrosive effect on human rights. I noticed I cut I, off that. You know, the device on my on my desk, I can't say its name right now because it'll wake up. But I cut that thing off. When it starts droning on about the capital of Bolivia or something, uh, you know, more than I want to know, I just tell it to stop. And I wonder if enough of that makes me do that to people. Because it sounds like a person, you know. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think that, and, and I know I keep bringing up science fiction, but uh, there's a show called Humans where the servants are the, the robots and that they've started to develop a lot of really complex emotions. And th this exact question comes up like, well, the company that makes them keeps replacing the models, just like you have with cars with new models that are even better. And what happens when you've got something that's pretty intelligent and has relationships with human beings and say, Oh, we're actually going to replace that one. or we're going to retire that one. And, something else it does get really dicey and i think this is a legitimate problem byron that we are going to have to face and yes i think you're absolutely right that it will have a corrosive effect on human rights because where where do we draw the line and how do we even tell sometimes whether i mean we're we're all going to be augmented you know by biochemical biomechanical entities and we're going to have artificial hands and limbs and organs and it's just like at, at some point what makes us human even from just a physiological standpoint and I think it's just going to get really weird <laughs> when machines start to become close 
and uh, I, I think it's interesting. And in terms of like childcare, I, I don't really know. You know, I'm not afraid to say when I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. And I, I don't know how children would react to eventually finding out, oh, you know, my caregiver isn't a human being. Kind of like human develop, humans develop relationships with animals. Well, it's almost like your robot's a different species and you can still love it. I don't know if I fully buy into this fake argument. Um, well, I, I think it's about... It's an interesting one. It's uh, just different. I don't know if it's fake per se. It just depends on your your point of view, I think. But that's why I love this. This is a great conversation. I hope your listeners are enjoying it as much as I am because it's really fun. I think about this case in Japan, though, where they made this robot. And the robot was trying to, it just was, they were just seeing if it could navigate through the mall with a lot of people. And what they found mm-hmm. is that kids abused it. And, uh, you know, they would like get in its way. And then when it tried to move, they would jump in its way. And eventually they would like hit it with their water bottles. And, and they had to change the programming that if the robot saw like a bunch of little people with no big people, in other words, a bunch of kids with no adults, it ran off towards a big person because it knew it was going to get abused. Mm-hmm. And later when they interviewed those kids and said, did you think what you were doing was upsetting the robot? 70% of them said, yes, I think it was causing it distress. I think it, it felt distress because it sure looked like right. it. And, and I guess that's what makes me wonder if, 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 if sending this mixed message that it's okay to torment something that, I mean, cause you know, look, if your car is stuck in the mud, you, you, floor it to try to get out, even if that's like not good on the engine. You don't feel morally compromised by this, right? I mean, you know, you'll tear up a set of tires or whatever you have to do to get out of the mud. Yeah. You don't think anything of it. It's so, the, it's the so interesting. You start, you start saying, on the one hand, you can tear this thing up and do whatever you want to it. On the other hand, it sure looks and acts like a human. Uh, I don't know. Now, you've mentioned the singularity a few times. Are you a singularian? You, you believe that that we will reach this moment? Yep. So it seems to me the core assumption of the singularity is that people are machines. Your brain is a machine. Your mind is a machine. Consciousness is a mechanistic process. And because of all of that, we'll be able to replicate it all in in machines. So do you explicitly say that people are machines? I I think you do have a point about that, that I I do think that our brains is a machine. Now we can get into a spiritual discussion as to whether there's more to a human being than, than you are. But that's really central to the and, question, right? Because. Yeah, but I, I don't, I don't think so because I think what, what I'm referring to the technological singularity, at least from my perspective, it's that technology will become so advanced that it will transform society in a way that we can't anticipate. I'm not suggesting that human beings won't still have souls or won't still live on in some way after death and that will make them different still. I, I think it has to do with development and pace of innovation and change that will happen at just a more exponential rate. I think for me, I consider those questions to be very, very separate. And well, I, I think it, I will share with the audience that I believe in, in, in a soul. And I believe that there is more to our existence than just a brain that's a machine that dies and, and you're done. Um, some people are like that. Um, they believe that, and that's that's cool. Um, but I'm I'm not one of them actually. So in, so. in a Kurzweilian sense, though, uh, the the thesis is that we reach this point that you can graph to that the a computer will become 
equal in computational power to a brain. And then, you know, 10 years later, it's a thousand times and 10 years later, it's a million times. Mm -hmm. And and at that point, you know, you, you can upload your consciousness. You can be in the machine. You know, the machine Mm -hmm. will effectively have consciousness. So you've mentioned human consciousness a a few times. I wrote a whole book about whether computers can become conscious. So I'm like deeply interested Mm -hmm. in the topic. So do you believe that computers can achieve consciousness? Can they experience the world? To define our terms very carefully, a computer right now can measure a temperature, but it can't feel any warmth. Do you believe? Right. And right. that's the difference. Whatever that difference is, that's, that's consciousness. It's a subjective experience of the universe. Do you believe computers yeah. will be able to achieve that? I, I think that the odds are enough in its favor um, that, that, it, that that will happen. I mean, like, we can't really predict exactly what that will mean, but, and, and whether they go beyond consciousness to something else. I mean, it could be that this proves the existence of a, a greater universe outside of our immediate human sphere or disproves it. I, I think that we, I like to look at this, and again, this is getting a little bit more into the spiritual side of things, but I, I like to look at our current human existence as being in a dark room and having a flame, a single flame that's lit, and that's what we can see, and that's what we can perceive. And if we were to turn on the lights in the room, we would see everything else. We would see the entirety of our existence, what it means, what, how we fit in, and that there's a lot more going on than just what we can see, or even what we could predict through science. I mean, science is predicting, you know, you mentioned Kurtzwellian, um, that's predicting that, yes, exponentially, we are going to see tech, tech advances get to a certain level where they're going to become far more intelligent in the traditional intelligence sense, getting back to our original question, than, than humans. But are they ever going to become totally human? And I think um, the, that answer, we, we can't know because we don't know exactly what it means to be a, to be a being in this universe and whether humans are just computers or whether there's something more. Um, but it could be that machines eventually prove or disprove this. It, it wouldn't surprise me. So as I said in your introduction, you recently wrote a book. Well, you probably wrote it quite a long time ago. Recently, a book came out called Humanity Works. Um, tell me what, why you wrote it, what you're trying to say, what you learned doing it. The reason, Byron, that I wrote Humanity Works is because I got started making I guess what, what we call in the future space is um, foresight um, observations about where the workforce would be going around 2003 when, when I got started in, in the HR space and where I started was advising young professionals on what they needed to do to be successful in business. And I'm on the, the tail end, just based on my age, of a generation called Generation X, which is very smart, uh, smart and small. And the generation that's just after that is called the Millennial Generation or Generation Y. And they are enormous. So the people that were just a little bit younger than me um, were coming to the workforce and they were behaving a lot differently. And the companies were ignoring this because they'd known always that 20-somethings were going to be a particular breed. And I started getting asked, how are the millennials going to impact the workforce as they get older? And I, I a little bit, you know, I don't want to brag, but I a little bit had my finger on the pulse of this very early. And so I started getting asked about other things about how I thought the workforce was going to develop in terms of things like contract workers. It's the fact that more people are not working full-time for organizations. People were mandating customized careers that instead of going from point A to point B because you're busted, you would go from point A to point C or really do anything you want. 
and seek out um, learning agility and the development of cross-functional expertise. I started getting asked how millennials would become leaders and what type of leaders they would be and speculating that they would be more transformational as opposed to hierarchical. And eventually I realized that companies really need to start thinking about this stuff because what happened with the millennials is nobody really thought about it or cared until it was an issue that was on fire because their whole workforce was rebelling and quitting and refused to do what 20-something were supposed to do. And I see a lot of these future work trends kind of starting to percolate up through the market and become important. And we're doing the same thing we did with the millennials, which is ignore them. And so my goal in writing Humanity Works is to not only explore the trends that are happening, but what do you need to be doing tomorrow to prepare your workforce for a world where you will have, for example, some, uh, smart machines, you will have machines that need to be inserted into processes, you will have um, human beings that are working in a variety of structures. It's not just your typical nine to six that we've always seen. You're going to have people who are working remotely, virtually, supplemented with artificial intelligence themselves, like virtual and augmented reality and, and telepresence. And these are really, as, as we've talked about throughout the last hour, these are complex issues when you see machines that don't just do basic tasks get involved in, in things. And so the purpose of Humanity Works is really just to educate leaders and say, look, you don't have to overhaul your entire operation here, but here are a couple things that you need to think about and start doing in order to, to recognize that these things are going to transform the work world in a way that we have not seen. And I think that it's possible if you get in on the early side of some of these trends, that you will be prepared. But if you decide to be reactive and ignore it until it's on fire, well, then I guess that's your prerogative as a leader. But the goal of Humanity Works is, is really to say, here are the trends, here's what you do. And also, the, the title comes from the idea that what we've been talking about all along is that you will never fully replace your human workforce. Here are the traits that your human workforce has. Here's why they're important. And here are the areas where you need to make sure you've got your humans in the loop. So I guess from what I'm hearing is some of the book is about a demographic change, like a societal change that's happening is, um, you know, a new generation comes up and then some of it is an external technological change of what's happening. Is it kind of equal parts about both of those? I, I think that's a good observation, Byron. What I have done with the structure of the book is I start off looking at the, what I call the space shuttle view. You look down at the earth and you say, all right, well, how are we changing with respect to who's available to work and why. Um, and so that is the demographic shift. They're happening in both developed countries and developing countries where there's simply going to be more people from countries like India and China that are qualified to, to work in different professions. And therefore, places like the US and UK are going to have to export qualified talent from those countries, meaning you're going to have to have people that work remotely, that you're going to have global teams. That's just the way it is. And you're going to have things like the baby boomers who are a very large generation that's entering retirement are not retiring in traditional ways. So they still want to work, but our setup here is not built to sustain that kind of model. It's once you retire, you're out and you don't do anything else except maybe going out to Florida and play Mahjong and golf. So we look at the demographic shifts and then we move into the changing structures of work in general. So that's things like virtual work, remote work, um, flex time, contract workers. Then we look at leaders and what leaders are going to need to develop in their workforces and in themselves and ways that companies will need to change in order to take advantage of some of these trends and focus on the things that are important. And then finally, we talk about the individual. What, what do individuals need to do in order to be prepared to be gainfully employed for the next 
And for a lot of people working today, it's, it's going to be multiple decades and a lot of things are going to change. And one thing that I really feel really strongly about is that, and I, I, I know we're coming kind of near the end and I, I'm thrilled to be able to end on this note because it's probably the most important thing I can say related to humanity works. And, and that's that automation is not going to take people's jobs. It will take parts of most people's jobs. So in the latest research from McKinsey, I think says that 60% of all occupations will be affected by automation, but only about 30% of the tasks within those 60% can be automated, meaning there's a whole lot of things left for humans to do. So that's not my concern. There's a lot of hand-wringing around, you know, oh, humans are going to be displaced and there's going to be mass unemployment. My concern, Byron, is this. I think the workforce is changing so significantly and, and take this for what it's worth. I know your audience is mostly professionals and so is mine. So I'm not talking about people with basic manufacturing jobs. I'm talking about knowledge workers for the most part. A lot of knowledge workers are not going to be used to this model of having to work for yourself and eat what you kill and make your own destiny. And that's where I have the biggest concern. Not that you won't have work, but that the work you have is not going to be fulfilling or, or it might be too stressful for you because you have to continuously sell yourself, manage your own time, develop very short-term relationships that are still, that are still fruitful, even though you don't have two years of sitting next to someone to, to get to know them and become friends. And I think we've been in this corporate structure that we're currently in for 150 years. And this is very, very different. And I think a lot of people are going to have a tough, tough time with it. I, I, I agree with almost all of that. I really do. I don't think we're going to have any unemployment from this. Like artificial intelligence and automation, artificial intelligence is kind of like a collective memory for the planet. Like we all, we're able to all learn from the data everybody else generates. And if that's a bad thing, then you kind of have to argue that ignorance is good. It would be better if we didn't have more intelligence. And, and I, I, I get, that's the number one question I get when I speak is what should I study to be relevant in the future? And Love it. I say, uh, it doesn't really matter. I mean, like if I went back to high school, there's only one class I could have taken then that would, I would still be using today and that's typing and I would have never guessed mm -hmm. that. Um, and I agree even further that I, I do go on to say, I think there's like three big skills and one is the ability to teach yourself new things. And one is yep, the ability totally to great learning agility. Correct. Uh, evaluate the quality of your own work and form and unform ad hoc teams. And I, I mean, you just touched on those. So I'm, I'm completely in agreement with you, but the, the, the last thing you said, I want to understand more because I don't usually say this, and that is that people are going to have a really tough time because I, I'm super bullish on, on, on humanity and people's ability to kind of like adapt and learn. And so I think, you know, I didn't, what I do today, I didn't learn in school. I just kind of learn it as you go along. And why, why is it going to be so difficult in your mind? Why isn't it that we just always roll with the punches? That's what humans are really good at. And, you know, we'll handle this like we handle every other change. Yeah, I think we will. I think you're right. But I, I don't think it's going to be without its bumps. And I think certain people are going to be better suited to it than others. So for example, now we see a lot of people who have jumped out of the corporate world to do their own thing like you and me and have done really well at it. But there's equally a number of people who are like, I, I might not love working in traditional business, but it's more comfortable for me. 
because I like being told what I need to do. I like to have my mission within the context of a larger mission. I like to be taken care of with respect to things like benefits and extracurriculars and volunteer work. It's a set structure that's very predictable. And I think humans would prefer, many humans would prefer that. It just depends on your personality. But I think what we're going to see now is a whole lot of people are thrust into a much more uncertain, um, evolving world where they've got to take a lot more initiative and people are just not used to it. So it's not that they won't eventually get it. I, I hope that everyone eventually does, but I think we're, we're in for a period of, of tumult while people who have been doing this, like you and me are going to do great because we're used to it. Um, and other people are going to be, they're just, they're going to prefer full-time employment, but just doesn't exist because companies are just going to get smart to why should I pay all this stuff, all this overhead for a full-time person when I don't need one. And frankly, the full-time person might not be as qualified or targeted to solve a particular business problem than other people. And uh, so you're not going to have the opportunity to get those types of jobs. And so I, I think, I think it's going to be tough for some people. Some people will do great with it. So last question, it sounds like you're overall, though, optimistic about the future. Is that the case? That is absolutely the case, Byron. And it sounds like you are, too. I, I feel like we both have an understanding of the value that humans bring to the table and that people were freaked out about the Industrial Revolution. People were freaked out about cars. Every time there's a major development, people think, oh, human society is coming to an end. But you're absolutely right that it's only improved and augmented our society. It hasn't it hasn't taken away the role that, that we can play. And I actually see this as a huge opportunity for humans to do more meaningful work, to take out some of the drudgery from the things that we do. And the key is just going to be creativity, which we naturally have as humans, but like any other skill, it's going to require some honing. We all know that, especially those of us who work in tech, we know that not all humans are created equal with respect to interpersonal skills. So those are going to need to be honed just because you're human doesn't mean you're great at that. So, but we're going to have to focus on the things that matter and really place ourselves in, ourselves in positions to follow the market. Exactly what you said about learning agility to teach ourselves new skills that become apparent. I mean, I never thought in a million years, I was a psych major in college. I never thought I would be taking data analytics courses. I am today because it's relevant to what I discuss. And who knew, just like you said with the typing. Um, and I think that we just need to be prepared and leaders have to be prepared to help their workforces develop these skills, even if it's not something they need immediately for the job you need done today, you have to have foresight and recognize it's coming. And it's going to be your best interest to ensure that people hone the skills that they need. Well, that's a wonderful place to leave it. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time. The book is called Humanity Works, and I assume it's available where fine books are sold, as they say. Absolutely. And thank you, Byron. It's been a really fun conversation and I hope everyone enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.